The following program was pre-recorded on WFAN. It's time for Hello, My Name is Craig, our weekly candid conversation about gambling addiction. It's supported by the Council on Compulsive Gambling of New Jersey, 800-GAMBLER. Now, here's Craig Carton. Good morning and welcome to another edition of Hello, My Name is Craig. Uh, Craig Carton here as always and for the next 30 minutes, an open, frank, honest conversation about gambling addiction. As I always say to start the show, and I say it for a reason, we don't espouse any particular beliefs. I say that because, you know, there's a lot of ways to kill the cat. You know, not everybody has to believe in one particular way to overcome addiction, whether that be gambling or anything else. As always, joining me this morning from the Council on Compulsive Gambling in New Jersey, better known to you all as 1-800-GAMBLER, is our dear friend Dan Trelaro. Danny, good morning. How are you? I'm doing well, Craig. Good morning. Thank you for having me. And a special guest today who's going to kind of cover two aspects of this, both uh, the addiction and then the potential recovery from that addiction, is Rick Benson. Rick is also the founder of the Algamist Therapy Center, which is a gambling-specific therapy program. And for full disclosure, the one I went to out of Prescott, Arizona, to get the help that I so desperately needed. Rick, good morning. How are you today? Good morning, Craig. Good to, good to be with you. Thank you. For uh, me. Yeah, before we get to the Algamist part, you know, I don't know your entire story. I know we've, we've talked a lot over the last couple of years, but I think it'd be probably worthwhile for our audience to hear kind of your background. When did you start gambling? And if you don't mind sharing with us, how did your gambling addiction manifest itself? So I started, I started gambling probably as a youngster flipping baseball cards. But my gambling really started to escalate. I was in a boarding school, actually, in New Jersey. And um, I grew up around a bridge table. My parents were both expert bridge players. So um, I found the best bridge player on campus. I was probably the second best bridge player on campus. And we decided to go about taking the money from other people who couldn't play, other students who couldn't play bridge as well as we did. Right. We did pretty well at that. I kind of put it down for a little while. Um, and when I was 24 years old, <clears throat> I started going to the racetrack. And one of the very first times I went there, this is now 1972, um, I went with a buddy and I didn't know how to exotically wager, meaning perfectus, exactus, trifectus, right. et cetera. He said, pick a number. I picked three. He picked six. The exacta paid $376.40. Notice that I'm recalling that like it happened five minutes ago. Yeah, I, I hear you <laughs> loud and clear on that. It was, it, it was the big win that hooked me. And within a month, I had resigned my job. I had bought books on thoroughbred handicapping, and I started as a horse player uh, into what was early on the winning phase of the addiction. Um, I also um, was a, uh, I, I played some high school sports, and so then I found bookmakers, and I started sports gambling as well. Um, and um, the gambling escalated. Uh, um, one of the things that happened to me along the way and trying to tell my, my story in a really contracted way is, you know, I've heard you guys talk on the phone before about the amount of lying that's necessary in order to continue the gambling addiction. Well, the, great lie, the first great lie that I told was a lie that I told to me. The lie that I told to me was that I was, in fact, a professional gambler. And then I was very successful at selling that lie to a lot of people, including um, my, primary, my partner, who I was with for 10 years. Um, everybody believed that I was a professional gambler. And I 
I, I, I posed that. I postured that. You um, you said it to. You, did you say it to hide the fact of what you were doing to try to make what you're doing more acceptable to other people if they kind of caught you doing it, or what was the actual mental no, reason behind it. it? I believed it. You did okay. I believed that I was a professional gambler, as evidenced by the fact that. Uh, less than six years later, I had moved to Vegas. I had taught myself to, to be a card counter blackjack player, not that it mattered because the, the addiction was overriding it. I couldn't see it at the time. And what I did for a period of almost five years was I gambled every day. And I did, I did whatever it, it took to sustain myself um, in, in terms of the gambling. Now, I'm now let, me, let me interrupt you on that. We're talking to Rick Benson here. There obviously there is a period of great wins, there's a period of great losses. Was there ever a lengthy period of time where you were winning enough to support a lifestyle, to pay rent, mortgage, etc., where you actually delivered on your kind of self-proclaimed "I'm a professional gambler"? To some extent, yes, Greg. However, I had a gambling mentor who was probably, I wouldn't, uh, I wouldn't say he was categorically a gambling addict, but probably. And one of the things that he said to me when we partnered up in the gambling, um, he said, you're about to go on a major roller coaster ride with tremendous peaks and valleys in what we're about to do here. So what you need is a woman who goes to work every day who will pay the rent and pay the automobile insurance and pay the utilities in the months when you can't do that. Wow. Mm. Wow. And he was right. And, 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 and I did that. And, um, and she did all of that. Um, and ultimately, obviously I lost that relationship. That's a, that's such a tremendous foresight uh, for someone else who obviously had lived it and was most likely, I agree with you, still living it. Before you continue, I want to backtrack on one thing, and I want to do it with Dan here real quick. You know, you talked about flipping baseball cards. You know, yep. I, I do look back on life now, and while we didn't call it gambling, we didn't think of it as gambling, it was like a precursor. You know, you're risking something. You might win the other guy's card. You might lose your card. But we never viewed it as untoward, bad to do. It was an outro part of being a kid in the 1970s. As, yeah. as well as 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 well as pitching pennies. Now that predates yeah. me. I I did not pitch <laughs> pennies, but I hear you. I hear you loud and clear. It's like it was almost like we were, you know, uh, oiling the body up, oiling the machine up, and getting it ready for what was to come somewhere down the line as we got old enough to do it. Right? We we're priming ourselves. Absolutely. Yeah, and it's interesting because, you know, when we think about flipping baseball cards, I remember flipping baseball cards in grade school, too. And, you know, again, it's that age of onset. It's starting early, and you almost think that your skill, you can flip the card at just the right angle, and then if the wind's blowing, oh, you got to know what the wind speed is. If you're flipping outside, if you're flipping inside, it's got to be a controlled environment. There was a lot that went into it, but you're not thinking that this is gambling or this is going to lead potentially someday to a problem. It's just a way to pass time. So, Rick, you were out there for five years, or however long it was, and I imagine there had to be some type of, you know, major cataclysmic event that brought you to your knees. Am I right on that or no? Absolutely. It was what we used to refer to, Craig, as wild card weekend. NFL weekend with four wild card games. This was in the mid-80s. I lost all four games 
I owed affiliated bookmakers a lot of money, and I didn't have any. Right. And my significant other had, at least six months earlier, she placed the Gambler's Anonymous hotline number next to our telephone. And, and I used to look at it and laugh every night when I called my bookmaker. <laughs> well, now the, the number was sitting there, and I was really jammed up. And I went to my first Gambler's Anonymous meeting. Very strange experience. <clears throat> I walked into a room in, in the Loop in Chicago, and um, there were six guys in the room, and I anticipated that they would be dressed the same way I was dressed in. Oh, like I was going to the racetrack, leather jacket, turtleneck, jeans, boots, December in Chicago. Um, they're all wearing three-piece suits. And I thought, well, this is pretty strange. What's going on here? This was a meeting that had been, had been started by and focused toward the commodities guys. Okay. Who the commodities and mercantile exchanges closed at 2.30. And uh, there was a 3 o'clock meeting every Wednesday in Chicago. Um, so I went to my first meeting, but early on, my motivations for going to meetings were very impure. Um, I believed that if I pretended, please hear that word. I believed that if I pretended to get help, that, um, she might give me a new set of keys to the new set of locks. That was about the fifth time she changed the locks. Well, I never got a new set of keys to the new set of locks. The relationship was over. Um, I also went because there was more heat than there was in my apartment. I went because there was more coffee than there was in my apartment. Um, and so the very best that I could do early on was just to show up. Yeah, but that's a lot. You know, I, I, I've experienced that as Dan has as well. And I've always said, you know, the, the first time I went to a meeting, I try to find the most out-of-the-place, smallest town, worst time possible and I walked into the basement of a church at six o'clock in the morning on a weekday, figuring how many how many people are possibly going to be in the basement of this church in a town of New Jersey I've never heard of before to go to a GA meeting. And I remember walking in, and there were about five or six other people, men and women, which struck me because I, for some reason, I, I guess I viewed it through sexist eyes. I never contemplated that there would be women. You know, at a mm -hmm. GA meeting, and there were. Mm -hmm. And I had such a tough time. You know, it's one of those things where you go to the wall, there's a stack of folding chairs. You grab your own chair, you come to the semicircle kind of thing. And you sit down, and there's, you know, a GA member that was leading the, the meeting that day. And I'm new, so as for those of you that don't know this, you know, you kind of get an opportunity to introduce yourself and, you know, uh, take ownership of being a compulsive gambler. And for the first time in my life as an adult, I started to cry. And tears were rolling down my face because now I'm sitting in a room that I don't feel like I belong in. And I went there really kind of like you, Rick. My uh, first couple meetings, I think I went to them more to get people off my ass, to let people make people think that, you know, I was taking ownership of it, that I, you know, I felt I really had a problem. But in reality, looking back on it, I think those first few meetings I went to were more about other people and how I wanted them to view me than they were about me really going to get help. We're going to continue this story and hear more from Rick and I returned his entire life around and then uh, found himself helping people like myself right after this. It's Hello, My Name is Craig on Sports Radio 1019 FM, The Fan.
Back to more of Hello, My Name is Craig on The Fan with your host, Craig Carton, and supported by the Council on Compulsive Gambling of New Jersey, 800-GAMBLER. Welcome back to Hello, My Name is Craig, Craig Carton, Dan Trelaro, Council on Compulsive Gambling in New Jersey, and the founder of Algamist Therapy Center in Prescott, Arizona, a, a friend, a colleague, and someone that got me the help that I needed, and so many other people who we, we've sent to Algamist, and who I know for a fact have gone through the Algamist program and come out the other side uh, in a much better place than they were when they went in. And I'm one of those people. And his name is Rick Benson. Rick, as we were talking there, you know, we were sharing stories about you know the first GA meeting, etc. When you had that cataclysmic wild card weekend, and then you finally did go to GA. And then ultimately, there had to be a point in your life, there was a reason, I assume, where you said, I'm not going to do this to pay lip service to it. Let me do it because I acknowledge I got a problem and I need help. What was that moment like? I remember the night that the light bulb went on, so to speak, Craig. I knew for a long period, and it wasn't that I couldn't gamble in safety, under control, and socially. I knew that for years. I knew that I didn't gamble like other people. But I remember sitting in a meeting and realizing that my life was going to continue to be a mess, a train wreck, if I, if I continued to gamble. And that somehow I had to figure out uh, and get the help that I needed to stay stopped a day at a time. Because prior to that, I had sat in meetings for a long period of time, and I had two thoughts that were 180 degrees apart from each other. The first thought was I'd look around that room as you described it, and I would say to myself, this is a really sick group of people, and I'm not nearly as sick as they are. But the second thought was worse. The second thought was, you know, I think this this GA thing can help these people, but I think I'm a lot sicker than they are, and I don't think it'll work for me. And I had to get rid of both of those ideas. Yep. I had to come to a place to understand that I was no better than or no worse than any other gambling addict. And let me just uh, speak to that. And I've said this on this show before, so Dan, I apologize for saying something you've heard multiple times. Okay. I didn't I didn't take ownership, Rick, of having a problem until I went to my first uh Algamist room. There were about maybe nine or ten other adults, again, men and women. And when they went around the room and each person described what their game of choice was and how they processed it emotionally and mentally, it was like they stole those words and those feelings out of my soul and out of my mouth. And it was only at that moment that I said, wow, they are like me. There's nothing special about me. The amount of money is irrelevant. The game is irrelevant. All these people, these strangers from all across the country almost like they read a script that I wrote, took every word and every feeling away from me, and it made me realize I got a problem. But until that moment, I denied it. Yep. I did. And that's the beauty of mutual aid, and that's the beauty of peer support, is that we sit there and we realize we're not so different. And, there, and there's a part of us that wants to be different when we're in action, but and in recovery, even when we go to those meetings and we're hearing other people, we expect that we're going to be different until, Craig, to your point, and also what Rick said, too, you know, we're sitting next to our peers. We're sitting next to people who actually get it. 
They understand what we're going through. It's so hard to find people who process gambling the same way that we do. So when you can sit next to someone and you're like, wow, you really do get it, that is, uh, that's like a wave of emotion that can hit. How hard was it to then start a therapy and rehab uh, business, Rick? You started Algamus. You know, it's out, in, it's out in Prescott, Arizona, which I discovered only when I went out there. It's kind of like the rehab capital of America. Yep. What, uh, how hard was it, and what was the impetus to do it? Okay, so it all happened without a, without a specific business plan. In 1992, my mom dies. I'm an only child. I quickly determined, A, my father can't live alone. B, I'm not going to send him to an adult-assisted living facility. And C, I say humorously, if he and I live under the same roof, I might wind up in a psych facility. Because as much as I love my dad, we're real different people. <laughs> so my answer is I'll buy a duplex, which I did. And I wind up with a six-bedroom, four-bath total duplex, 3-2 on top of 3-2. And I carve out an apartment for my dad, and now I have five bedrooms and three baths. And I'm going to AA meetings because there's very little GA in Southwest Florida at that time. One meeting a week, actually, within 100 miles. So alcoholics uh, new to recovery, new to abstinence, are coming up to me and saying, do you have a room to rent? Yes. Do you have a room to rent? Yes. Do you have a room to rent? Yes. All of a sudden, I'm running an alcohol halfway house. Hmm. Now, Arnie Wexler, whom both of you know, says to me, why don't you convert it to all gamblers? There's no place like that in the country. And I do that. And then Paul Ash, who you may also know, says to me, why don't you go back and do the training that you need to do to become an internationally certified gambling counselor because you seem to like doing what you're doing. Then you can office, offer modest priced gambling treatment. Um, and there's really no place like that that's gambling specific around the country either. And I do that. And so that's how it all started. Wow. So literally, wow. I mean, you talk about turning uh, you know, lemons into lemonade, for lack of any better term that I could say on the radio. You did it, and it's become your life's calling. You know, I wonder, is running a center like that and being intimately involved, whether you're there physically every day of the week or not, is that therapeutic for you all these years later? Very significantly therapeutic, although much more so in the first five years that, that I was doing it, um, that I was running the program or programs, um, it was very, very therapeutic because every time a new person showed up, and it's still true, a new per and I, obviously I don't do the clinical work now that I used to do, but a new person would show up and they'd tell their story in their first couple of days in group as you remember. And when they would do that, I would sit there and I would, I would have this thought process. You know, I can have all this devastation, all the anger and all the fear and all the emotional pain that they're feeling right now. I can have all of that back. All I have to do is make another bet. For sure. Easy. I can go back, I can go back there again. And so yep. it, was, it was extremely therapeutic. Not only... I, I, I would tremendously feel that I was letting my clients down if I made another bet because I, I'm hopefully an example of the, the ability to do some fairly qualitative recovery. 
Yeah, that that drives me too, actually. You know, because yeah. you know there have been times when I've thought about gambling. You know, how could you not, right? It, you know, it's such right. a big part of my life for so long, and outside of obviously the, the most important thing, and that's you know my my family and their well being, and then second to that, my well being. You know, I do find that since my story is so public, that there is a part of me that feels this responsibility to everybody out there that is trying to get help that I can't falter. Because if I falter, you know, they're going to falter. And maybe that's still a little bit of my ego, I suppose, in that regard. But it is a driving force for me that I don't want to mess up because I want someone else out there that might look up to me or view my story of redemption as something that helps get them through the addiction to know that you can get through it and have a life on the other side of it. So I get that completely. Now, at the, at the same time, he, he, here's a little bit of the other side of that coin. Working in the industry, what we refer to as two hatters, which I am, working in the industry and being a recovering gambler, I can't let my daytime, <clears throat> my daytime work become a substitute in total for my own recovery. In other, in other words, don't become addicted to the to therapy. Right. Well, I, I still, I still have to, I, I still have to be mindful of my own recovery. Right. Yeah. And do what I need to do to recover, and what I do in the daytime is not a replacement for that. No, I, I got yep. it. I got it. I get that completely. I do get that. Yep. And each and one of involves, us, Dan, you know, finds oh. a different way to do that. Yeah, and, and that involves almost what we talked about last week with Dr. Fong. You know, taking the time, having balance, and you know, getting the proper sleep, the diet, the nutrition, the exercise, self-practicing self-care to realize that there are certain days that we can't be that, that support person for someone else. You know, we always talk about when you're in recovery, you have to have multiple tools in your tool belt. We have to have a sponsor. We have to have close friends. We have to have trusted people because we might reach out to a friend one day and maybe they're going through life on their own terms that day, and they can't give us the, the strength that we need. So we have to reach out and find it from someone else. We always need to have multiple tools so that we can practice self-care ourselves. Before I let you go, Rick, uh, let's, uh, you know, Algamus, you know, frankly, you know, helped save my life. So as you know, I'm a big fan of yours and a proponent of the type of uh, therapy you guys uh, deliver and believe in. If uh, there's someone out there listening now that, either thinks they have a problem, and we talk a lot on the show, thinks that they have a loved one who has a problem and they want to reach out to your staff just to chat at first to see what it's all about. How do we get people in touch with you? Call me directly at 888-ALGAMUS, A-L-G-A-M-U-S. You know, I made Algamus T-shirts while I was there. I don't know if you know about that. I knew that story, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I was so... Do you I, I tell, still have one for me? I got one for you. I was so proud of getting through it and having uh, the staff tell me that I completed the program, that I wanted to have something that I, it stays with me forever. So I've only done this twice in my entire life. I made shirts for the entire staff and for the other men and women that were in therapy with me, which says Algamus, um, you know, for life, basically. Algamus, you know, membership for life, that type of thing. And it's in my closet. I wear it sometimes to bed. I wear it to work sometimes under a sweatshirt, what have you. Because uh, it's a reminder of where I've been. The only other time I've done that is uh, when I came back from prison. And there's the pair of sneakers that I walked like God knows how many hundreds or thousands of miles in over the year that I was away. And I'll never wear them again, but they're in my closet. So that every day I go into that closet, 
I see sneakers that I wore in prison, and there's an Algamas shirt that you know, reminds me of the work I did to try to conquer my, my addiction. And I just wanted to let you know, I'm very appreciative of your staff. And I know staffs change over the course of time. It's natural. But the uh, crew of uh, therapists that you had working for you and with you uh, are... You know, they walk on water for guys like me. So I appreciate it very much, and I encourage people to look at Rick's program called Algamas out in Arizona. And I wish you the best, Rick, and I look forward to seeing you one day soon. Thanks, Greg. I look forward to seeing you in person, and you, you also, Dan, one day soon. Likewise. You will all rendezvous in Arizona. Yeah, Sounds well, listen, great, uh, Dan and I were talking about it last night. You invite us, we're coming. We don't say no okay. to a trip to Arizona. I can promise you that. Absolutely. You let, you let me know what works for you in the summertime. We'll get on the phone and we'll simply work it out. No doubt. Thanks. Dan, as always, appreciate it. For those that need help and are, are an earshot of us, it's 1-800-GAMBLER. Dan is the Assistant Executive Director uh, for the Council on Compulsive Gambling here in New Jersey. And he and his uh, staff do an amazing job. And they are available 24-7. If you have a problem, if you have a loved one or a friend that you think has a problem, Please pick up the phone, make that call, and start having the conversation. That might very well save a life. Danny, always good talking to you. Thanks for your time, pal. Likewise. Thanks, Craig. Have a great week. That'll do it for us. Evan Roberts is coming up next. And, of course, Monday at 2 o'clock, Carton and Roberts back on the fan. Enjoy the rest of your weekend. And thank you for listening to Hello, My Name is Craig, here on Sports Radio 1019 FM, The Fan.